Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Thank you so very much. I'm so grateful to the Lord that wherever we go, Jesus is there. Amen. So we thank God for you being here today as well. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to find Acts chapter number 20. Acts chapter number 20. I want to thank God for Chris Porter. I'm so grateful for Pastor Chris. I thought he did an excellent job uh, taking us through Acts chapter 19 through that uh, monstrosity of a parochopy or a uh, paragraph. Uh, For those of you uh, who uh, uh, need it, I'm so grateful uh, for the job that he did, and I'm thankful for him. We're going to pick up where he left off there in verse number 1 of chapter 20. The only thing harder than Acts chapter 19 is Acts chapter 20. And so here is a wonderful passage of Scripture uh, that comes with much delight to preach. I am almost confident that some of you will not fall asleep in church today for fear of dying. And so what do you mean? Well, let's look at chapter 20, verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says, and I hope you have your pens in hand. There are several things I need to say uh, parenthetically about the text just so that we can understand it. Notice what the Scripture says beginning in verse number 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So if you have your pens, pencil, lipstick, or mascara... I want to make sure you get this. The Bible says in verse number 1 that the uproar had ceased. This is the riot that took place in Ephesus. Remember, the whole purpose for the riot in Ephesus was because they loved money more than they loved seeking God. And so they created this god, this Diana, uh, the goddess Diana. And so uh, I got tickled at Chris. He kept talking about it and saying, Princess Diana, uh, which was quite humorous. Uh, That's better than what I thought about. I thought about Michael Jackson's old soul, Dirty Diana. That's what I kept thinking about. Uh, But at any rate, Diana is here in the text. And this uproar happened, and finally it calmed down. And so it all had calmed down. There's a lot of persecution going on amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible says that he called these disciples together, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, if you would, I would underline that. I would underline the word Macedonia, and I'd put out beside it Philippi. I'd put out beside that Philippi. As a matter of fact, do we have that? um, Do we have the map? No map? Okay. So uh, you can look on Paul's third missionary journey towards the back of your uh, Bibles, and you can see a map of this third missionary journey where Paul left Jerusalem, went up and encouraged the congregations that he had already established, and then he heads over to Ephesus. That's where he stays for three years and a riot happens after the riot. Here's where we pick up in verse number 1 of chapter 20. And then his desire is to go to Jerusalem. But we notice that it takes him north first. We'll deal with that here in just a little while. But when you see the word Macedonia in verse number 1, be thinking about the church at Philippi and in those churches in that region. Verse number 2. Now, when he had gone over that region, he encouraged them with many words, and then he came to Greece. Now, remember, Greece is where Corinth is located. So, beside Greece, I would put Corinth, because that's where he is headed. He's going to 
Corinth. Remember, while he was at Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he wants to make sure everything's going right at Corinth because there's a mess going on at Corinth. And Titus is there, and Titus is trying to figure out everything that's going on. Did they respond to the letter properly? Did they discipline properly? There was some discipline that needed to take place in the church. They weren't doing the Lord's Supper right. They, they had some folks misusing uh, church worship. There was just a lot going on that needed church discipline. And we find here, Paul is wanting to hear about that, so he wants to get down to court and find out what's going on. Verse 3, the Bible says, And he stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, when he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to go through Macedonia. So he takes and turns and he goes back up to Philippi. Verse number 4, And Sodifer the Berean accompanied him to Asia, also... Erastus uh, and Secundus of Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. If you have your pens, underline the word us. We haven't seen this since chapter 16. Remember who this includes. This includes the writer of the book of Acts, which is none other than Luke. So Luke has been here the whole time. Luke has been here ministering, and finally they all caught up with each other, and they're there, and as they are there, the Bible says, they waited for us at Troas. Verse number 6. But we, talking about Luke as well, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now... On the first day of the week, let me say this parenthetically, that's Sunday. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. Can I get a witness right there? Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room, and they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he was saying, does it bother you, preacher, when people fall asleep on you? I feel like Paul, I just keep on preaching. The Bible says he just continued preaching, he continued speaking, and Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him, and said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life, for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up, they had broken bread and eaten and taken a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Praise God. Amen. Thank the Lord for that. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I titled the sermon this morning, A Funny Thing Happened at Church Today. A funny thing happened at church today. Man, funny things happen in church all the time. Keith, I can remember at my previous church, I was preaching one Sunday morning, and as we were preaching, the lights kept going off. They would go off, and then they'd come back on, and then they'd go off, and then they'd come back on. And we had just built a brand new sanctuary, and come to find out, we had put a chair right in front of the light switch. And the light switch wasn't a switch at all, it was a button. And there was a fellow sitting back there in the back, and he was sleeping during service while preaching. 
And he couldn't help himself. His head kept bobbing back. And every time it hit that switch, the lights would go out. Well, when his head hit the, hit the wall, he'd wake up. And then he'd doze back off and he'd hit it and the lights would come back on. And so he goes off and on and off and on. And uh, uh, we finally were, we were bum-fuzzled. We were like, what's going on with the electricity here? And come to find out the whole time it was just that church member back there sleeping. We fixed that here. If you'll notice on the back walls back there, Johnny, if you look just right over your shoulder, you'll see we put cases on ours. So you can fall asleep on there and you won't turn off the lights. It may be easy to fall asleep in church, and some even find it easy to fall asleep in cars. Uh, I can't fall asleep in a car. I just I really struggle with that, and I'll tell you the reason why. A little thing happened to me. When I was a senior in high school, uh, there was uh, one of my schoolmates had an uncle that lived in uh, Miami, Florida. And he called uh, up his uh, nephew, and he said, Look, why don't for your senior trip, a couple of your buddies come down here and stay with me in my apartment. Y'all can go to the beach. Uh, Y'all can experience the culture of Miami. So we thought that was a good idea. More, more importantly, it was a free idea. So we all got together, and uh, we all piled in one vehicle and drove down. And I'll never forget it. There were five of us in this car. And as all five of us were sitting in the car, I was actually sitting in the middle. It was my turn to sit in the middle. And I was sitting in the middle, so I had a guy on my left, a guy on my right, a guy on the front uh, passenger side, and a guy driving. Everybody in the car was sleeping, even the driver. And this is a true story. And as we're traveling, it was in the Florida Turnpike, and as we're going down that Florida Turnpike, just straight as an arrow, I can say this one thing. The alignment on that car was really good. We went just as straight as an arrow. And, when, and I'm sitting there, and I'm still awake. I just have a hard time going to sleep in, in cars. But slowly, slowly, that car began to drift over uh, into uh, the, the little median there or over on the shoulder of the road where you got those little ridges. Wah, 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 wah. Well, I saw it drifting. I didn't think anything about it. I just reached up and grabbed the steering wheel. And I turned to my buddy, and I said, Wake up. It's my turn to drive. And sure enough, he pulled over. Now, that's a very dangerous Situation, And ever since then, I have never, ever, ever been able to sleep in a car. Well, you might be able to sleep in a car, and you might be able to sleep in church. Here's a young man by the name of Eutychus that fell asleep. But I want to share this with you. This text travels far beyond just falling asleep in church. As a matter of fact, when you look at this text, this section of Scripture of Acts, we have to remember Paul is on his third missionary journey. So as Paul is on his third missionary journey, he just endured this major riot that took place at Ephesus. Paul had already given the desire of his heart. Let me show you this. Turn back to chapter number 19. Look at verse number 21. The Bible says here in the text, the desire that Paul had was that when these things were accomplished, Paul's purpose in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, was to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. But this wasn't Paul's ultimate journey. He also tells the Corinthians that his desire also was to see Spain. So Paul had this desire to get to Jerusalem and then get back to Rome and then get to Spain all for the purpose of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you get to chapter 20 in verses 1, 2, and 3, it's very important to understand that some scholars say that there is a one-year term between verse 1 and verse 3. It's a fascinating theory, but we also see that it is covered by 2 Corinthians chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter number 1 to chapter 7, you can sum up everything that's in the first three verses of Acts chapter number 20. As a matter of fact, Luke's account uh, here, it may be very brief, but in filling in the gaps as to what's happening here, we have to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. As a matter of fact, turn over there and let me show you what this passage of Scripture says. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 12, notice what Paul says in filling in the gaps here. He says, furthermore, or Luke says this, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord, and I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, whom always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Paul just simply says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, in communicating through Luke, as Luke writes, just simply says, wherever we go, there's this beautiful fragrance of the Lord that flows out from us. But he says, in my journey to Macedonia, I was looking for Timothy. And I wanted to get that report from Timothy. So from this we learn that leaving Ephesus, Paul stopped at Troas, where he found an open door of ministry, but that he also was constrained so much by the love of the brethren that he wanted to go over to Corinth, and he wanted to make sure that everything was okay there in the church at Corinth. So Paul has already said that his desire was to go to Jerusalem. So when you think about the context of this purpose, you've got a context of this text, you've got to remember Paul is wanting to get to Jerusalem. The Bible says in Acts chapter 19, verse again in verse 21, he says, after I've been to Jerusalem, then I'm going to Rome. So if he desired to go to Jerusalem, why does he go to Macedonia? It's in the opposite direction. Why is this taking place? Remember this. Before Paul left Ephesus, he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. So before the riot took place, before all of those things happened, he wrote that letter to the church at Corinth. And he expressed to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, he said this, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So here we have insight as to why Paul did not go directly to Jerusalem. The reason why Paul, when he left Ephesus, he went north, is he wanted to get a collection together from the Gentiles so that he could take it back to the church at Jerusalem. So Paul's effort, his endeavor, his desire was that the, the world see the unification of the church of Jesus Christ, that there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no Syntyche, there is no other uh, nationality but a Christian. We're the human race, and Jesus died for the human race. Christianity's not just a Jewish religion. It's not just an American religion. It's not just uh, a, 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 a this religion or that religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul, when he leaves Ephesus, having written this letter to the church at Corinth, he's instructing them to get ready. He's coming up there to get the offering. He wants to collect it so that he can take it back to the church at uh, Jerusalem. The question is, did it, did it happen? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 gives us the answer. You don't have to turn, but listen to what the Bible says there. 
Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction and their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberty or their, their, their liberty. For I tested or I testified to the fact that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. For this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So Paul basically says, as messed up as Corinth was, their desire was that the gospel spread all around the world, and they even begged to participate in missions giving. So the question is, is missions giving important? Absolutely, absolutely. We must give to missions. And in regard to giving to missions, I praise the Lord for your faithfulness, church, in being faithful in giving to the missions of our world in getting the gospel out to every tongue and every tribe. So this was Paul's context. This is where he was operating from. But when you look at this passage of Scripture, we see two things, if you would, that are important points that we must not ignore concerning Paul's journey to get this offering to Jerusalem. I want to share those with you this morning. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to notice biblical discipleship. Biblical discipleship. In the first six verses, we see biblical discipleship firsthand. So what do you mean? Remember what's gone on in the church at Ephesus. There's been this huge riot. Uh, there's been persecution. There's been things that have been said. There have been things that have been done. And Paul was told, do not show up. But Paul has the heart of Christ. And through the heart of Christ, Paul's desire is to disciple these brothers and sisters in such a way that they're strong in their faith and they do not ignore the fact that persecution is beneficial for the kingdom of God. It may be hard, it may be tough, it may be challenging, but it grows the church. Look at what the Bible says, that, that Paul in biblical discipleship, what that entails. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is that it, it entails concern. Verse number one, notice the text. The Bible says, and after the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. I would underline that word called. That word called is a term of endearment. It literally carries the idea to, to call out with a loud voice. He literally called out with a loud voice, I want to see these specific disciples. And he wanted them to come to his side for an intended purpose. What was the intended purpose? The intended purpose was to follow up with them and make sure that they understood that Jesus loves them and that the faith that they had in Jesus Christ could help them endure any difficult time. We see that Paul gave a great concern for these individuals going through persecution. Uh, I want to just say by way of illustration, a number of people have called, have come by my house, uh, have sent us messages, especially concerning my stepmom and now Grandma Fogel's death. And uh, many of you call me to the side and you look at me and you might even say something like this, Pastor, get some rest. 
Uh, you might look at me and I might look a little tired in your eyes. Or you might look at my wife and we may look a little tired in your eyes. And you might want to give us a form of encouragement, get some rest. That concern that you have for your pastor and your pastor's family is the same concern that Paul had for these disciples who just endured this difficulty, this riot that took place where money was more important than God. And he called them to his side with this great concern so that he could love them. Number two, there's a second thing here. Not only do you see concern, but you also see care. Look at verse number one again. He says not only did he call these disciples to himself, but he also embraced them. The term embrace here uh, is a Greek word, aspasmonod, and it has a basic meaning to draw one closer to oneself in such a way to welcome them. We would say it this way, he hugged them. He brought them to his side. He showed them a basic term of endearment. He cared for them. Brothers and sisters, we're living in a culture today where People are not going to know that we care until they see how much we care. Paul cared for these individuals. And he cared for them in such a way that he called them to his side. And then he brought them under his arms to hug them and to care for them and to receive them with joy. We see discipleship. Discipleship is not only teaching, it's not only uh, proclaiming, it's not only education, but it is also helping meet the need within the small group that we're in. Paul did this through concern. He did this through care. And then watch this, number three. He also did this with concentration. Paul was concentrated on the facts. In fact, when you look at verses 1 all the way down to verse number 6, you see that Paul was basically concentrating on two things. Number one, the first thing he was concentrating was on the mission. Paul was concentrating on the mission. What was the mission? Remember, the mission that we find in this wonderful gospel of Acts is to see the Holy Spirit of God move throughout the regions in which he did, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts, and watching the gospel spread that is even at work today. And so we find the ultimate mission was to make disciples. Paul's ultimate concentration on the mission, number one, was make disciples. Number two, he had a second mission. The second mission is that after he left Ephesus, he goes north to Macedonia, but he makes a stop in Troas. And while he is there at Troas, he then he goes down to Greece, where, where Corinth is located, and he's got this desire to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he has this mission to get the offering to the church at Jerusalem. That's his second mission. Get the offering to the church at Jerusalem. And then he's got a third mission. His third mission is to meet up with Titus somewhere along the way. He wants to meet up with Titus somewhere along the way so that he can get a report as to how did the church at Corinth receive my first letter. We see the results of that in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse number 12. Again, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and a door was opened unto me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus. 
He wanted to see Titus so bad. Titus does not show up again until he gets to Macedonia. And when he gets to Macedonia, he fi- Titus finally says, Paul, you're not going to believe what happened. They read your letter. They took those that were sinning against God and they disciplined them in the Lord. Those individuals got right with God and after they got right with God, they came closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot wait to participate in the offering so that they can get the gospel all the way around the world. So he wanted to meet up with Titus to get that information. But not only did Paul concentrate on the mission. He also concentrated on the men. Did you see what happened here in the text? The Bible tells us in verses 4 through 6 that there were several men that were accompanying him on this journey. Who are these men? What are they doing here in the text? The Bible tells us first and foremost that there's a man by the name of Sopater. Who in the world is he? The Bible identifies him as a Berean. We know that the Bereans love to study the Word of God. In fact, this man is mentioned in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. His name means Savior of the Father. He's quite possibly a Jewish relative of Paul, and he loved to study the Word of God. And he accompanied Paul on this third missionary journey. And then there's a man by the name of Secundus. This individual helped get the offering to Jerusalem. You say, what exactly was his job? When you read this guy, you cannot help but recognize him as being part of the security team. He wanted to make sure that the money got there, and he served on the security team to get this funds to the church. And then we come to a guy by the name of Gaius. Gaius was a part of Paul's pit crew. He was a preacher in training. His desire was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ according to history. And so we find Gaius is accompanying Paul, listening to him preach, listening to him teach, and watching how he interacts with the culture. Then you see a man by the name of Tychicus, Paul's messenger to the churches. Tychicus is a very interesting individual because he's the one that delivers information to the churches. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that he delivered information to the churches from Paul. Luke actually calls him an Asian. He is the same individual that carried the letter of Ephesians and Colossians to those respected churches. God doesn't care what nationality you are. All He desires is a willing heart and wanting to go to work for Him. And then you see this other individual, Tromaphus. He is possibly the other brother who came with Titus and carried Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And then you see two other individuals, a man by the name of Timothy and also Luke. No introduction is needed for these individuals. We find that they loved the Lord with all their heart and wanted to see the gospel expand. So when you look at this text, you cannot help but see in these first six verses biblical discipleship. It consists of concern, it consists of care, and it consists of concentration. Brothers and sisters, the application is quite simple today for us at Maysville Baptist Church. Do we participate in biblical discipleship? 
We may listen to teaching. We may hear historical facts about the Word of God. Uh, We may know about the context, and we might hear uh, about what's going on in this particular section of Scripture. And we may preach the Bible and be trustworthy and noteworthy and accurate on all accounts. But just knowledge for knowledge's sake results in nothing. It is our responsibility, church, to not only hear the Word, but receive the word and then apply the word and then appropriate the word. And brothers and sisters, I challenge you today in this respect, as a born-again child of God, as a man and woman of faith, as a member of Maysville Baptist Church, may it be our calling that God has given us love God, love others, and serve the world and participate in that purpose statement for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might see just one more soul come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. We must fall into a biblical discipleship. Not only do we need to receive the word through preaching, but there's got to be concern in our hearts as we look around and we go, where is so-and-so? Let me pick the phone up and call them and check on them. Uh, Let me tell them that I miss them. There's no greater time to start a care and concern ministry than right now during this COVID, uh, terrible, terrible COVID season. There's got to be concern. There's got to be care. I've got to be honest with you. I thank God for those of you that, that still are hugging. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that. We want everybody to be safe. We want everybody to feel safe. Uh, we've done everything in our power to create an environment that's safe for you. But I thank God that some of you haven't stopped shaking hands with me. You're welcome to shake my hand. May the Lord bless you and thank you for your care. And thank you for your hugs. But might I say the third thing by way of application for you and I is that we concentrate on the mission. May we never lose sight of the mission. We see biblical discipleship. But let me show you something very quickly in verses 7 through 12. The second thing I want you to notice very quickly is biblical worship. Biblical worship. Uh, This is one of the most interesting passages of scriptures that we have in scripture concerning a Sunday worship service. It gives us in detail what's going on. As a matter of fact, when you look at verses 7 uh, through 12, there's two categories that it's placed in. Category number one is the details of their worship. Verses 7 and 8 gives us the details of a Sunday morning worship service in the first century church. Notice what the Bible says. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is most interesting in the details of their worship that it contains the clearest picture of a Sunday worship service here in Troas. So what did they do? The first thing I want you to see is a specific day. They met on Sunday. They met on Sunday. Now remember, Jewish Jewish calendar says that if you're going to meet on Sunday, and the the very first moment that Sunday happens is at sunset. So they met actually on Sunday night, not Sunday morning. A lot of people look at this text and say, well, here's where we really need to notice that that they met on Sunday night. We need Sunday night service. If this is the way we're going to do it in first century church, then we don't need to have Sunday morning service. Because they went to Sunday evening service. That's when their first service was. Not in the morning, but in the evening. 
And so when you think about this, it's good to note that they came on this specific day, the first day of the week. Now, there are many that get distracted during this, and they think, well, man, I thought they were supposed to meet on Saturday. Now, that's a Sabbath day. But remember, according to the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the Bible says, On the first day of the week, each of you, each and every one of you, shall put aside and save something that, that, as he has prospered, so that no collection will be made when I come. Paul told the church at Corinth, not in this specific offering that he's carrying to Jerusalem, but he also told the church, he says, you meet on the first day of the week. They were to do this on the first day of the week because that's when they gathered. That's when the Lord and Savior was resurrected from the dead. They wanted to gather on the day that Jesus, up from the grave, he arose. So we see here that this Sabbath was done away with. And you say, well, how was it done away with? Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 tells us why we don't meet on Saturday. The Bible says, Therefore, now, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or even a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. See, the Sabbath was Jewish. It was a shadow of things to come. And the fulfillment of that shadow was Jesus Christ. So does the church have to meet on Sunday? The Bible answers that. Romans chapter number 14. The Bible says this in verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be faithfully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does it for the Lord. And he that uh, gives thanks to God, and he that eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. We meet regardless of the day, but we come on the first day of the week. Why? So that we've set aside for the Lord. So is it wrong for a church to have a Friday evening service? No. Is it wrong for a church to have a Saturday evening service? No. As long as our hearts know that we're coming to give thanks to God. So we see a special day. Not only do we see a special day, but we also see a special group. Did you see it in verse number 7? Notice the text again. He says, when the disciples came together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we see that these disciples, these Christ followers came for the purpose of worshiping God. It was not static. It was absolutely active. They came to actively worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we see that they did not come to sit and soak. They came to learn, to implement, to apply so that they could go out and share the good news. And then there's a third thing we see here, and that is a special service. Notice again in verse number 7. The Bible says that the disciples came together to break bread. This is the Lord's Supper. They had a special Lord's Supper service on this occasion. It's fascinating to note that the first century church participated in the Lord's Supper on many occasions, most every Sunday. So why don't we do every Sunday? Because it is not required in Scripture. The Bible says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You see, we do not want to set up where we worship the Lord's Supper. We do not want to set up where we worship the Bible. We want it set up in such a way that we worship God. 
And so as often as we have the Lord's Supper, as often as we have baptism, as often as we preach out of the Word of God, which is every week, it is to hear from God and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We see here in the text details of their worship. But let me show you a second thing as I close. Not only do you see the details of their worship, you also see the distraction in their worship. The distraction in their worship. What happens in verses 9 through 12 is Paul begins to talk to them. Now this is important. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says, And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overtaken by sleep, and, and as Paul continued speaking. That word continued speaking is a dialogue that Paul is communicating and talking with the congregation. He's just not flat out expounding the Word of God here in the text. He's communicating the biblical truths. This young man, you see that word young man, probably a teenager. He's a teenage boy doing teenage things. He ought to have been sitting in a pew, but instead he was sitting in the windowsill. They're up on the third floor, mind you. He's in a windowsill. It's probably hot. It's dark. The lights, uh, are, are the candles are burning. And the sound of the preacher's voice as he's taking questions and answering questions is slowly putting him to sleep. Punch that person beside you and say, wake up. We find that he falls asleep. And he falls out the window. The Bible tells us here in the text that as he fell out the window, Paul ran down and embraced him. The same embrace that we see up in the previous verses. And says, don't trouble yourself, his life is still in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken bread and he eaten. That's not the Lord's Supper again. Now he's feeding this young man. He's thinking, maybe if I get some food in me, he can last throughout the rest of this sermon. Now that I've risen, he's been risen from the dead. He says, I'll take, uh, he said, and they talked for a long while till the daybreak. And then the Bible says he departed. They brought this young man in alive to the church service, and they were not a little comforted. They were so thankful. Now, there are three things that I want you to notice about this text in closing. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is an illustration of Jesus' death. In verse number nine, the Bible says that Eutychus fell out of the window and he fell dead. There's a good chance that Paul was preaching in, in regarding to this morning or this uh, Sunday service. He was preaching about Jesus. Uh, they were close to the day of Pentecost. They were close to the day remembering when Pentecost happened and also remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we find here in the text that this would very, fall very naturally into an illustration that this guy died, but he wasn't really dead. On the contrary, on the contrary, he was dead as a hammer and needed to be risen to life. The same thing that took place to Jesus who really died on Calvary's cross. So not only do we see an illustration of Jesus' death, we also see an illustration of Jesus' resurrection. Verse number 10, the Bible says when Paul fell on him and embraced him, he says, do not trouble yourself for his life is in him. Remember, during this season, Paul has been given a very special gift. 
there were individuals that were getting saved with his handkerchiefs and with his apron. And during this season, the word of God had not been completed. And God was using this special gift that he had given to Paul to see that these individuals, especially here during this situation, this young boy who was dead, he fell out of a three-story window. He landed on the ground, and the Bible said he was taken up dead. But Paul was used by God to resurrect him again. What a great illustration for when they walked back into the church service. And the Bible says that they were not a little comforted because the dead was now alive. Paul could have very easily said in the context of this passage of Scripture, he could have very easily said, this is the power of Christ. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And Jesus rose again the third day. And then we see a third thing very quickly. We see a celebration of renewed relationships. The Bible says, And they brought the young boy in alive, and they were not a little comforted. There was this great relationship that was renewed between this dead boy that is now alive and the congregation. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you today that this sermon is more than just a boy falling out a window. It's a sermon to show that Jesus is alive. It's an illustration. An illustration that points to the fact that not too many years before, Jesus went to Calvary's cross and he stretched out his arms and his feet and he was nailed to the cross and he died in our place. They took him off that cross and put him in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He rose victorious over death. He rose victorious over hell. He rose victorious over the grave. And just as that young boy came back to life, Jesus, without the help of Paul, without the help of anyone, Jesus raised himself up from the dead. One day after a while, whether we live to be 96 like Grandma Fogel, or whether we only live another year, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. Oh, dear friend, don't let death fool you. Paul was very accurate in his communication to the church when he clearly was communicating the fact that, watch this, if you are born once, you'll die twice. But if you are born twice, you'll only die once. I got so excited, I, I, I can't wait to share this afternoon at 3 o'clock about Grandma Fogel. I was going through some of her memories. And David, I found, a, I found a little note she had written. And on that note, it had her name. And the first line of that, name, of that, of that uh, note tells us when she received Christ as her Savior. The greatest thing that ever happened to that 96-year-old happened when she was a young girl, when she heard the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. It changed her life forever. And though dementia took her mind, it didn't take her soul. For when she breathed her last breath that Thursday afternoon, she breathed and inhaled the celestial air of heaven and thought clearly, there is my Jesus.
Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. If you were to die today, I want to, especially in church, I may throw my body on you, but God did not give me the same gift he gave to Paul. I won't resurrect you from the dead. I can't. The Bible says it's appointed a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. When you stand before your judge, when you stand before the judge of God, what are you going to say to him? What if he says to you, why, why, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say to him? The judge. Will you say to him, well, you know what? I, I went to church every week. Oh, I, I listen to them preachers on TV. I, I joined this church or I joined that church. I, 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 just, I, I got baptized. I took the Lord's Supper. There are going to be a lot of good religious people in hell. You see, Jesus answered the question as to what we should say when we stand before the judge. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man will come to the Father but by me. The only way to pass through the Father is you've got to pass with Jesus Christ. When Grandma stood before God Almighty, the judge at her death, if he in fact said, Marita, why should I let you into my heaven? She could testify to the fact because of your son, Jesus. Jesus paid my price. Brothers and sisters, did Jesus pay your price today? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here and maybe you need to receive Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Would you say something like this to the Lord today? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And today I ask you to save my soul. Thank you for saving me. I will live for you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you. And I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.